the brand Crock-Pot had to start a Twitter account. That's a really odd sentence if you think about it, but, but it happened the week before the Super Bowl, which Crock-Pot will tell you is one of their biggest weeks of the year because everybody's making things in the Crock-Pot, but they had to start a Twitter account because people were furious at Crock-Pot. People were throwing their Crock-Pots out the window. They were swearing to never buy one again, and it was this huge backlash against Crock-Pot. And I have to tell you that I think this is a hilarious story <laughs> because all of these people who are mad at Crock-Pot are mad because on the show, This Is Us, I guess I'm going to tell you spoiler alert, but I'll be honest, I don't really care if I spoil this for you or not. On the show, This Is Us, one of the main characters dies. I really wish there was a better way that this happened, but whatever. And one of the main characters dies because in the middle of the night, the crockpot mysteriously turned on and caught fire and started the house fire. And, and the one character, I don't even know his name because the show is silly. And um, I'm not even going to listen when people who tell me his name is Jack. Couldn't care less. Um, the show, <laughs> I'm not listening to this guy anymore. He doesn't like my show. So anyways, so the crockpot catches fire, the house catches on fire, and the dad, Jack, doesn't make it out of the fire. And so I, he dies, whatever, he dies. That's all that matters, is he dies, okay? And what, what, what kills me is that people, people were like throwing their crock pot out the window and like smashing it and swearing to never cook in it again. But y'all, like, crock pot already had their money. They don't care. Um, but it's so interesting because it was this level of grief that people felt towards a, a fictional TV show. But it's more interesting than that because, because the story of This Is Us is the story of a family that takes course over several different decades, and it examines what it's like in life to deal with, with family. And so for a couple of weeks around that time, the crockpot was this <laughs> hot-button issue. <laughs> That's a good one. I just made that up, too. The crockpot was this, this huge ordeal that everyone was talking about, and it really, really kind of started conversations about grief. And here, here's the thing about, about grief, is that grief is a difficult topic. Grief is difficult because, and I'll say this several times throughout the next 30 minutes together, grief is difficult because it's incredibly personal, and everyone grieves differently. I have, I have a friend who um, called me and asked me to do some counseling. And I, I'm going to tell you this publicly, so it's on, on the record. I don't counsel. Um, I don't counsel for two reasons. Number one, there are pros who do it way better than me. Number two, I don't know if you've all ever seen the old Newhart show where he was a counselor and he would just say, stop it all the time. That's what I would do as a counselor. Be like, oh, that's your problem? Stop it. Don't do that anymore. Um, so I don't do it very often, but... If you ever need to talk, I can guarantee you like 45 minutes that I'll try to listen and help you. But if you need more than that, I'm going to send you to a pro. Here's a trick, though. If you buy me lunch, I'll answer any question you want. Um, so my friend, he lives out of town. He's not from around here, but he's a, a law enforcement officer in a different city. And he promised to buy me lunch if I would talk to him about some stuff that he was dealing with. And he'd only been a cop for a few months, and he had come upon this wreck and it was a bad wreck, you know, you know, the kind of wreck that you would hope to never see. And he says that, you know, he snapped into action, he did everything he was supposed to, but there were people who, who died in the accident. 
And he lives in a smaller town, and he said the whole town was grieving and people were upset, but he had moved to this town not that long ago. He didn't really know the people involved, and he looked at me and he said, I'm struggling. And he said, everyone else is grieving over this accident. Everybody else is broken and upset, and he said, I didn't feel anything. And he said, am am I messed up? And it came to this this moment where I was like, I I don't think you are. Let's send you to a professional to find out. But I, I, I tried to assure him that he wasn't because grief is such a personal thing. And in, in his life, there will be enough grief that he doesn't need to start bearing the grief of, of other people he doesn't even know. And I said, so it would be impossible for us to expect you to feel every accident and to feel all the things. that you, would, you wouldn't be able to live that way. And I, and I assured him that, that there are times where other people are grieving and you won't know what to do. And there are times where other people are grieving and other people are feeling and you just can't feel like they feel. And that's what happens a lot of times with with grief is that it's so personal that the person right next to you could be grieving in a way you'll never understand. What's really interesting to me about grief is the way that it changes a family's dynamic. You've dealt with grief in your life. If you've been alive for more than four minutes, you've dealt with grief, you've dealt with loss, you've dealt with pain, and you've seen how it can change a family. You've seen how it can make everything different at the drop of a hat. In fact, did you know that if a, in a marriage, if they lose a child to a tragic accident or to, to death within that marriage, that 80% of those marriages end in divorce? Because the grief so changes the dynamic of the family that everything is different. And so I want you to know, before we go any further, before, before we move past just talking about grief in, in an introductory sort of way, I want you to know that grief is hard. And I want you to know that no one here is going to be condemned or chided or judged for the grief that they're experiencing, and that nothing you're doing is wrong. I, I do want to say this, though. I want to remind you that if you follow Jesus and that if the person you're grieving follows Jesus, you have some hope in this story. That your grief, while it is very real and very painful, should always be softened by the realization that Jesus came and, and died and rose again so that you and I would have the hope of eternity in heaven. And so I want you to know that, that I do believe that your grief should be softened, but I also know that your grief is real and that your grief hurts. You see, grief is, is a very real emotion, and it's a very real part of, of your and my life. The best sermon I've ever heard on grief, like honestly, we should have just played this video, is a sermon from Rick Warren. Um, Rick wrote A Purpose Driven Life. He's a pastor of a huge church out in California, but about five years ago, Rick Warren's son committed suicide. And so Rick Warren kind of walked through these stages of grief in a way that most of us hope to never have to go through. And he preached a sermon on grief, and it was beautiful. The most beautiful thing he said is that grief is not a task, it is a process. It is not a staircase, it's a roller coaster. And so I want you to know that today about about your grief, maybe about the grief of the person you love who's still dealing with it, that don't expect it to be a task, 
but a process. Don't expect it to be a staircase, but a roller coaster. You see, it'll go in stages, and it'll happen in phases, and there will be hills, and there will be valleys, and there will be great days, and there will be days where the pit of your stomach just seems like it's dropped out. This is the reality of grief, is that it, it hurts. But I hope that your grief can be softened by the remembrance of Jesus and the hope that he gives in heaven. Today we're going to talk about two different, two different things about grieving. The first is we're going to talk about dealing with grief, and then at the end we're going to talk about being around people who do. To talk about, about grieving people, we're going to talk about a guy in the Bible named Joseph. And I always like to give this clarification just in case you're new, just in case you're not really that familiar with the Bible. There's two main important people in the Bible named Joseph. The, the one that you probably thought of first is the Joseph who is the earthly father of Jesus. The earthly father of Jesus is not the one we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the other Joseph. You might know him from Dolly Parton's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, but he's, he's in the book of Genesis in chapter 49, if you want to turn there. The story of Joseph is amazing. We could spend weeks just talking about Joseph's story, but I'm going to give you a really abbreviated version just to kind of catch you up. You see, Joseph is born to a guy named Jacob. Jacob, you may remember, is the son of a guy named Isaac. Isaac is who we talked about last week, the son of Abraham, the ones who lied about who their wife was. That, that's kind of where this all goes, where it all fits in together. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is named Joseph. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, days of our lives, soap opera kind of stuff, so you just kind of got to bear with me and know that this happened. Jacob has two wives, and he has one wife that he doesn't like all that much, Okay, and then he has his other wife, who's his favorite. His first wife, who he doesn't like all that much, produces 10 children for him. His second wife, the one who becomes his favorite, Rachel, that's not her name. I'm drawing a blank right now, so we're going to pass on that. The second wife gives her Joseph. And Joseph, because he comes from the favored wife, becomes the favorite son. And as the favorite son, he gets this beautiful coat, and it's this, the coat you've heard, the coat of many colors. And the coat of many colors really indicates that Joseph never has to work a day in his life, which you can imagine the other 11 brothers are really excited about, right? And it indicates that he's his favorite. And so the brothers get jealous, and the brothers get upset, and eventually they come up with this plot to kill Joseph. And instead of killing him at the very last minute, they decide to sell him into slavery to some people who are passing through. And the people who are passing, him through, passing through leave Cana there, and they go to Egypt. And there in Egypt, they sell him as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. And the guy Potiphar ends up throwing him in jail for something he's falsely accused of. It's there in jail that he spends several years in jail before eventually he interprets a dream for Pharaoh and, and proves proves himself right, and Pharaoh decides that he is so worthy that Pharaoh makes him the number two in command over all of Egypt. This is like months of story, years of story, unpacked in about 30 seconds for you. But Joseph ends up second in command over all of Egypt. He has all the power, all the money, all the prestige, anything you could want in your life. And eventually, a famine strikes the earth. And people from everywhere come to Egypt because Joseph had helped plan for the famine because God was blessing him. One of the families who comes to Egypt asking for help 
is the family of Jacob. And so Joseph, now with all his power, with all his prestige, has this moment where he can get revenge on his brothers. Instead, he welcomes his family back with open arms. In the last uh, of Jacob's days, he lives there in Egypt with his sons and with Joseph reunited again with his whole family. And it's there that he lives out his last days. But the family could tell things were changing. They could tell Jacob wasn't doing well. They could tell that life was hard on Jacob. And he's laying in bed for his last days. And in chapter 49 of Genesis, he gives his blessing to each of his sons. He reminds them who they are. He reminds them where they came from and what they can be. And then in verse 33 of chapter 49, it says, When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. You see, this is one of those things that we, I wanted to pause and mention about grief. Is that Joseph's dad was, was older. His time had come. They had known for a while that it was coming. But his pain is still there. The hurt still exists. The grief is still real. Even if they had warning, even if they've known, you're well aware that every person who's ever lived dies. That doesn't change how it feels when someone you love dies. It doesn't change how it looks. It doesn't change how it, how it hurts. It doesn't change how you feel. And Joseph knows that all too well. Because in verse 1 of the next chapter, it says, Joseph threw himself on his father, wept over him, and kissed him. You have to remember, Joseph is the second most powerful man in the largest, most powerful empire of his day. He has all the money, all the resources, all of the anything he could ask for. Everything is at his disposal. But the moment comes when his father passes and Joseph throws himself on his father and weeps. Because this pain is real, and because the grief hurts. This is, this is the story of grief. Jacob had asked that he not be buried there in Egypt, that he go back to his homeland of, of Canaan and, and be buried there. What's, what's kind of unique for this situation is that in the Jewish custom, the custom that Jacob had been raised in, that typically you would bury the body within 24 hours. At this time, as you may remember from middle school history, the Egyptian culture is learning about embalming and body preserving. And so Joseph uses all of the resources at his disposal to embalm the body of Jacob, which was not what they had traditionally done, so that they can then make the 200-mile trek back to Canaan to bury his father. And so I want you to put yourself in the place of Joseph where you're taking this 200-mile journey to the place you hadn't been since you were a teenager. He was 16, 17 years old when his brother sold him off. It had been somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 years at least since he had been home. And imagine crossing the, the Jordan River. Imagine, imagine going home and walking to the place where your family used to live. Imagine burying your father in the cemetery where his father and his father's father and all of these family members had come before. Imagine the grief and, and the pain that you feel. Imagine not having been somewhere for 30 years and all of the memories and emotions just coming back. 
Imagine that pain. And this is what Joseph is, is feeling in this moment. Something interesting happens when Joseph is feeling this, and this really, really is a great lesson for us. Remember now, it's just Joseph and his brothers. His mother had passed long ago. His father has now passed. It's just Joseph and his brothers. And his brothers get together and they go, oh, so we need to go talk to Joseph. Right, like the leader of the group has the other brothers huddled around and he's like, you all understand that we tried to kill him one time and now he's the second most powerful man in the whole world. Um, we should do something about this. And so once, once things have settled down after, after a short while, things are starting to get back to normal and in the grieving process, the brothers approach Joseph. And they're like, hey, um, we're real sorry about that time we tried to kill you. But listen, in, in Joseph's grief, I, I want you to hear his response. It happens in verse 19. I, w- I want you to hear this. And Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. He says, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And he says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You catch that? In the midst of his grief about the loss of his father, in the midst of of this changing dynamic that he had never expected and never really wanted to think through, his brothers come to him and they're like, hey, you probably want to kill us. But Joseph didn't let that grief form his anger. Instead, he saw it as an opportunity to remind his brothers that there was a creator God who had a bigger plan for all of this than any of them ever knew. You see, in the midst of his grief, he saw an opportunity to offer forgiveness. He saw an opportunity to reach out to the people who were hurting and it's different, right? Joseph is before the time of Jesus, so he doesn't know the, the, the arena of hope that you and I know. But he knows that he follows a God who made all of these things that happened in his life work together to save the planet. He knows that he follows a God who, who has worked in his life in extreme ways, and he knows that God does not want him to exact revenge on his brothers. And it's in his grief that he takes a moment to remind himself of the God who created him, of the God who gave him life, of the God who originally gave his father life. In his grief, he reminded himself of hope. And it's not easy. It's not easy in in the nights when you roll over and the other side of the bed is cold. It's not easy in the days when the phone doesn't ring like it used to. It's not easy in the days when you think, I would give anything for just one more time. It's not easy in those times, but those are the moments most when we need to remind ourselves of hope. Because hope is how we work through the process. Hope is what's at the end of the roller coaster. I'll be honest, it's really hard for me to talk practically about dealing with grief. 
You see, I don't, I don't think there are five easy steps that you should take to guarantee you'll be grief-free in six weeks from the funeral. I, I don't think that, that there's, a, there's a, a stop date when the, when the pain should stop. I, I don't think that's how this works. I, I think grief is a very real emotion that each of us deal with, and I want you to know that it's okay. It's not an emotion to suppress. It's not an emotion to repress. It's an emotion to express in healthy, tangible ways that help you through the process. I also want you to know that Jesus grieved. The easiest verse in the Bible to memorize is John chapter 11, verse 35. It says, Jesus wept. That's it. But Jesus wept because he stood at the grave of his, of his friend Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead. And Jesus felt the grief and the emotion of all the people around him. And he felt the grief of knowing that his own friend had died. And Jesus wept. But Jesus also calls Lazarus back out of the grave. Jesus also said, blessed are those who mourn. And so it's not a, grief is not an emotion to feel ashamed of. Grief is not an emotion to be sorry for. Grief is an emotion to, to express at, at the right time. But grief also should be a constant reminder of hope. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says this, and I love the way he says it in the message translation. He says, first off, you must not carry on over them like the people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave were the last word. And catch this right here, catch this. He says, since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who died in Jesus. And he says, do not carry on like those who, were, who think there's nothing beyond the grave. He says, remember, Jesus died to go beyond the grave, to defeat death once and for all, for you and for me. I have to tell you, I, I perform and officiate many funerals, and and I, I, one of the things that I've noticed that I never knew about until I stayed with the, the, the funeral and kind of went through the whole process as the pastor of the funeral is the moment when the family is getting ready to close the casket. And, and I've noticed before, and I don't mean to tattle on any of you if this is you, I've noticed before that people put things in the casket right before it closes. What drives me wild is that sometimes they put things of value in there. I'm like, you, you, should, you should sell that. <laughs> but that's just me. I'm a little bit practical. So I didn't want to tattle on any of you because I've seen some of you put some funny things in there. So I asked some of my other pastor friends what they've seen people put in the casket in that last moment. So if this also was you, you're guilty. But um, I have a friend who says that he once saw a family put a racing form and a $2 bill in, in their grandmother's casket because they figured grandma would want to bet on the dogs in heaven. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure there's no dog racing there. Anyways, I have, <laughs> I have another friend who put poker chips in his grandfather's casket because, he's, or because he swears grandpa will be playing Texas Hold'em while he's there. No comment. I have seen people, my friends told me they've seen people put, put golf clubs in there. They've seen people put bottles of whiskey in there. They've seen all kinds of things. My favorite, though, is the man who told me, the, my pastor friend who told me that his, the wife of the husband brought a mini fire extinguisher. And I was like, oh, is she like, is, was he a firefighter? Or <laughs> he, he, he asked her about it, and she said, he's going to need this where he's going. <laughs> and I was like, 
you know, whatever works. But the, the all-time favorite, though, my all-time favorite was the woman who, who uh, attended her, who planned her husband's funeral. And the, the, my pastor friend said that the funeral started and he's preaching the sermon, but the body isn't there. And about 10 minutes into the sermon, the, the, the funeral home opens the doors and they wheel the casket in. And so later he asks the wife, he says, what happened there? And she goes, he was 10 minutes late to our wedding, 30 minutes late to our 25th anniversary dinner, and almost missed his own father's funeral because he was running so late, so I assured him he would be late to his own funeral too. <laughs> and it's this thing like where, where there, there's these moments where we try to hold on to here, but, but for us, the hope is something far beyond the shell that we put in the ground. The hope that we have is something far beyond the memories that we carry here because the hope that we have in heaven is something much greater. My friends, if they follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, then your goal in their life should be to celebrate their life. In your grief, remind yourself of the hope that you have. In your pain, remind yourself that heaven is better. And I'm going to say this, and it might sting, but if you know of people who you couldn't celebrate their hope because they aren't going to heaven, that needs to spur you to have a conversation this week with them about following Jesus. It needs to stir an invitation to church, maybe on Easter. Maybe it just needs to spur you to find some people who can help you share Jesus with this friend, who family, with this person you love who doesn't know Jesus. To say, I can't deal with not having this hope in you. I need you to know who Jesus is. You see, there's another end to, to this discussion, and I, th I think it's equally important. It's not dealing with the grief, but it's being with the grievers. And John Keeble says that tears are the best gift of God to a suffering man. Rick Warren says that when we share our joys, they are doubled. When we share our sorrows, they are halved. And there's something important to understand that when a friend, when a family member, when a loved one is grieving, it's important for us to remember that we don't need to leave them alone. And we don't need to let them grieve by themselves. The story of Job is the story of a man who knew grief. Job had everything going perfectly for him and then in one instant lost his family, lost his livelihood, lost his property, lost all of it. And so in the second chapter of the book of Job, Job goes from being this rich, well-to-do, well-thought-of man to being this man who now has nothing. And in the second chapter of Job, we learn something really important from his friends. And his friends later in the book of Job, I'm going to warn you, don't always get it right, but right here they do. In the second chapter of Job, verse 13, they walk up and this is when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore off their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word, because they saw how great his suffering was. Friends, sometimes when somebody's grieving, when somebody's suffering, there's nothing you need to say. There's no answer you need to know. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is just sit in their grief with them. You don't have to know the, the, 
the answers. You don't have to recite Bible verses. You don't have to talk their ear off. Sometimes the most important thing you can do with someone who's grieving is sit with them. And here's where this gets a little bit harder, is sometimes that grief is years old. Sometimes that grief is months old, and you thought, I thought, I thought we were over this already, but that grief still comes. Those are still moments to sit in the grief with them. Those are still moments for you to share in their grief, to share in their pain, and to sit in that grief and have that with them. And say, I feel your pain, and, and I'm sorry. Joe Bailey is the author of a book called The Last Thing We Talk About. And Joe Bailey has one of those stories that no one hopes to ever live. Three different times he lost children to tragic accidents. And he says that in the last moment when he lost his third child, he said there was a friend who, who came with him and who spent the entire time they were together talking about grace and reminding him of hope and telling him about the future and all of these things. And Joe Bailey said that visit seemed to never end. And then he said, the next time a friend came by, the friend just sat and cried with me. And he said, I wanted that friend to stay forever. You see, there are times in our lives when it's time to just sit in the grief. When it's time for us to just just wallow in it together for a moment and to say, I am so, so sorry. I want to say this, and I I want you to know that I I don't always do this perfectly, and and I know you probably don't either. But sometimes when you're sitting in grief with a friend, sometimes the worst thing you can say is, if you need anything, let me know. See, the reality is, is in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their loss, the last thing they need is to be a delegator of tasks. And I apologize because I don't always do that right because it's an easy, trite thing to say. But the real answer in times of those griefs, in, time, in times of those griefs, in times of those moments is, is to say, what do you want for dinner tonight? We're coming over. It's to go to their home if you're this kind of friend with them or to this kind of part of their family and say, point me to the laundry room. I'll make sure everything's caught up before I go. The real, the real kind of ways that we can help people in their grief is not to say, I'm praying for you. Prayer is an important thing to do, but it's to find ways to tangibly serve amidst their grief without them having to ask. You see, the thing about being with a grieving person is that they, we need ways to remind them of hope without beating them over the head with it. And the, way, the thing about being with a grieving person is that there are ways to serve and to kindly remind and to gently show Jesus without ever having to bash it into their skull. And I'm going to be honest with you. There's nothing more important than reminding people that their grief should be softened by hope in Jesus. There is nothing that matters more. There is nothing that has a greater importance in your life than reminding people that their grief can be softened by a hope in Jesus when the time is right. Because this is the reason we have hope. Because of of Jesus and because of who he is, we have hope. You see, Jesus came to earth 
And he said, blessed are the mourners. But that's not the end of the sentence. The end of the sentence is he said, blessed are the mourners for they will be comforted. And the comfort that they find is in the comfort of knowing that Jesus came and he died on the cross and he was buried in the grave and then he rose from the grave to defeat defeat death. And so in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your pain, when you feel it, when you hurt, and when all of those things come crashing down, remind yourself in that moment there is hope. There is hope in Jesus because he saw a painful death on a cross. His body was broken. His blood was poured out for you and for me so that we didn't have to carry that grief anymore so that our grief could be softened by hope. Remind yourself of that as we pass the bread and we pass the cup. Remind yourself that his body was broken and his blood was poured out for hope.